Glad to see everybody kind of parking okay. <laughs> what race is that anyway? Do you know? Moonlight Half. Moonlight Half Marathon? Very cool. Alright, well, my name is Greg. I'm one of the leaders here at Waters West Church. And it's, I mean, I know almost everybody here. It's great to be with my church family. Um, and the name of my message this morning is, is Reintegrate. Moving from disintegration to integrity God's view of justice. Um, it was hard to come up with the title of this message, honestly, because it's a hard message. It's a hard passage of scriptures. And uh, uh, I was kind of nervous about diving into it and sharing it with the family because it was actually forming my own heart when I went through it. And the idea of reintegration kind of stands a lot of things, right? So um, I, the, the image I had in my mind was like, kind of like a space you have a rocket ship and then it launches from the launching pad and goes into the atmosphere. Um, if, there's, if there's a problem with the integrity of the hull, then that rocket ship is going to disintegrate, right? It's going to explode. It's not going to get from point A to point B in um, holes. And so I think what you have to do is you have to rework the issue, find where the chief and the armor is, rework the hull. And, and repair it, fix it so that it can travel from where it leaves to where the destination is with full integrity without risking this integration. And so what we're, what we're going to see here from Amos is that I think he's identifying in us perhaps a chink in the whole of our armor as all of that. See, Amos is a book filled with symbolism, poetry, and historical context. There's a lot of context in order to gain, to gain the full meaning of this text. And I know the story, but I've learned a ton about ancient Israel, the Mesopotamian Empire, uh, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. For example, did you know that idol worship was a thing to do in those days? For example, um, how many idols do you guys think were present in the Mesopotamian Empire? You think there were like 10 idols? I know that there was a few that we see in the Bible. Maybe, maybe 50? Maybe hundreds of idols? Actually, there's thousands of idols in the Mesopotamian Empire. In fact, in Assyria alone, in my studies, I found there's like between 2,100 idols to 3,600 idols. And that's not even including Babylon or other surrounding regions. In fact, anthropologists believe that there have been at least 18,000 little g gods who have been worshipped since our species first appeared. So God chose Israel to be the sort of church at the time, right? The purpose of Israel was to bring the one true God's message of salvation to the world. And under the law, Israel was unable to do so. Therefore, under grace, God also planned to expand his church to include us Gentiles. You, me, non-Jews, non-Israelites, to be grafted into the lineage of his holy people, to take his message of love to the ends of the earth. And so I want to I want to kind of prep you guys. As we read today's text, it may sound harsh to your ears. God uses strong language, in light of how we may experience God today, it might seem a little out of character, but I assure you it's not. We have the very same God today as the God of the Old Testament. God's intentions have always been love and life for his people and for the world. Now what you see here is uh, what's called the Fertile Crescent, which they think is where the beginning of humanity 
begin. Uh, the area that we're looking at is around Assyria, kind of between the Tigris and the Euphrates, where there was so much water that it would just flourish in vegetation, growth, and farming, and things like that. Uh, but uh, let's move on. So Andy last week mentioned in Amos chapter 4 to chapter 5 that, that God's desire is for Israel to return to him, to be just, to have mercy, and to walk with him in humility. Like what it says in Micah 6 8. And Amos 4, verse 5 says, Seek me and live. And then he repeats in verse 14, Seek good, not evil, and live. Hate evil, love good. God desires to have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. The remnant of Joseph was Israel. You see, Israel was chosen to be God's people not because they were mighty and strong people, but because they were weak. He knew their need for a savior, and he intended this to bring basically the gospel of the world. They were intended to be the image of God's justice and righteousness, but because of the weak, they needed to rely on God and thereby let him change their hearts and determine their steps. So I think it's easy to see that the behavior of God's, of God's people is of paramount importance. And this should speak to us. But not because God expects our actions to stack up to his lofty paradigm. That would create a, work, a workspace faith. But because the actions of God's people are an indicator, and they actually reveal the condition of our hearts. So this begs the question, what do our actions communicate? Do they show us to be a people of integrity? Do our actions show us to be a people of justice and a people of righteousness? <clears throat> So when we read today's scripture, I'd like us to hear it in the voice of a heartbroken father whose child will listen to appeal after appeal. It's, a, it's kind of a tough love situation. Because when a people advertise as being a people of God and their focus strays from God's idea of what is best towards decisions that hurt themselves and others, well then this is the moment that we need tough love with real consequences. For example, my wife Karen, she's a dietitian. She works for a local university, and she recently um, uh, had to deal with an anorexic student. Anorexia is a disease that, that causes extreme weight loss, and in this particular patient, it caused muscle wasting and even affected her heart, causing bradycardia. She was so malnourished that her heart rate went dangerously low in the 30s, and that's a problem. Now, as a school, their responsibility is, of course, to the student, but they also have to balance the liability of a person's decisions causing them self-harm. So it came down to allowing that student to live on campus versus off campus, and the student actually preferred to live on campus. But the school requires a basic standard of health to remain there. The school cannot legally stop an adult from pursuing their degree or even choosing to be poorly. But they don't have to allow that student to live on campus, somewhat sanctioning their self-destructive behavior. So the student thankfully called their parents, and now she's seeking to get medical help. So the student's parents, the school, and Carrie all want her to finish her degree, right? They want her to enjoy a healthy life, to live, even thrive in their future. But a line had to be drawn. And out of love, and of course, protection against liability, a line was drawn. So 
this text, I think, reveals God's life. God's liability is in the way that his people portray him. And when God's people fail to hold that line, it has drastic consequences. Isn't that why Muhammad Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I don't like the Christians? The Christians are so unlike Christ. So let's get into the text. And out of respect for God's word, if you're able to see it, please, please do so and let's read this together. This, I, I'm going to warn you, is a long reading, but please bear with me. Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through chapter 6, verse 14. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are stench to me. Even though you bring, you bring me burnt offerings from grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like an ever-failing stream. Did you bring any sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourself. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Caleb and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lands and fat, fattened calves. You strum away in your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of David Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go in exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relatives who come to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says no, then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the God has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But have you turned justice, but you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness? You who rejoice in the conquest of the Lodabar and say, Did we not take Karnani by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you, 
all the way from Libo Himai to the Valley of the Arabah. This is God's word for us today. Please be seated and take a deep breath. There's a law that's called the Truth and Advertising Law. It's a federal law that was developed by the FTC, the Federal Trade, Trade Commission. And it's a law that helps prevent fraud against consumers. And what this, what this law says is that an advertisement must be truthful, not misleading, and when appropriate, backed by scientific evidence. God's word today is more relevant than even the FTC. He holds us accountable to truth and advertising. See, for centuries, Israel advertised themselves as God's people for the nations, but Israel was found taking advantage of the poor and having much confidence in their past successes. Israel became proud, and they became something different than what was advertised. So in the text, we can see that there's a language of grieving because the Lord is in grief over the state of his people. And we're going to see that Israel exhibited three ways that their advertising was found to be false. Israel showed religious presumption, religious hypocrisy, and religious indifference. You can see through verses 18 through 27 that Israel had a lot of religious presumption. What is religious presumption? Well, we presume, we assume that we're on good terms with God while refusing to acknowledge our sin, to repent, and to take up the work of the Lord by faith. Now, I'm not up here trying to make us feel guilty and stack our plate with more to-dos. All right, we're all busy people. This passage, however, has opened my own mind to the opportunities of gospel beauty and how we treat those in need. See, the Bible tells us that the poorest among us are typically described as the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. And I just want to like, make us have a vision of, of what a life it would be to live if we looked for opportunities to reach out our hand to those who are engulfed in the storms around them and drowning, and to pick them up and place them on solid ground. I know Jesus did this for me, and maybe for you, and he certainly offers it to all of us. But if we assume that we're on good terms with God and fail to repent and take up his work, it could look like injustice. It's unjust to be a Christian, saying, come Lord Jesus, come, while doing nothing in the world around it's unjust to be a Christian covering over child abusers by handling it in-house rather than giving it to the proper authorities. It's unjust to be a Christian to hear the surge of homelessness yet remain oblivious to the poor in our community. So it begs the question again, are we guilty of false advertising? Are we being truthful or are we being misleading? Let's talk a little bit about the day of the Lord and how Israel thought about that. In verse 5, 18 through 20, it says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. See, Israel longed for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day is going to be darkness, not light. The day of the Lord is the day where God will deliver Israel's foes and establish his people. But what they failed to understand that is that establishing his people meant this. God will also call his people to account and to answer for the way that they have lived their lives. The day of the Lord is going to be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting. God is saying, don't be longing for the day of the Lord because that day is going to be hard on you because of the decisions that you make. Scripture speaks to us about having fear of the Lord because of his justice. And the fear of the Lord 
it's more of an absolute reverence and submission to our holy God, not, not a terror of some cosmic boogeyman. I can think about growing up and how, you know, my dad loved me and I loved my dad, but man, if I got into trouble, he would discipline me. And so I feared getting in trouble to discipline my dad. So it's kind of like that, maybe. See, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Paul says that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's actually God who's working in and through us. John says to abide in Christ so that when he appears, we will have confidence and not shrink from him. James says faith without works is dead. So what, what's the lesson? The lesson is do not simply recite evangelical doctrine without taking up that collection. Amos is saying, have integrity if you're a follower of God. We're not just here to have a good time and hang out in a little exclusive Christian club marinating in the warm Christian jacuzzi of our village. How are we being God's ambassadors and advocates for the lesser? Here and now to the people in the seats next to you and then maybe outside the walls of this building. See, I believe that the purpose of the church is mission and love. Love is the context of that mission. In 1 John 4, 19, John says that we love because God first loved us, right? God loved us. He loves us. And out of that love overflows love to the community and the world around us. So we surrender to God and the heart of our mission is love and, and we express that in worship and through the acts of faith. But when we don't do that, then it leads us to the second point. Amos 5, 21 to 27, I think, highlights Israel's religious hypocrisy. God, through Amos, methodically identifies each form of worship and then denies it. They celebrated delivery from slavery themselves, even while oppressing their neighbor. They did performative communion without action. They lived in an alternate reality from what their symbols of worship were actually announcing. And God, as a result, evaluated the sounds of his songs as noise. The Lord said, I won't smell your offerings. I won't look at your sacrifices. I won't hear your music. God rejected their worship because the, the worshipers rejected justice. They wanted rivers of religiosity rather than rivers of justice, and they showed religious hypocrisy. And then we get to Amos 5, verse 24. See, Amos 5, verse 24 is actually a historic significance in the United States. On Friday, April 12, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested during a peaceful demonstration against segregation. So remember the history. Whites could not intermix with blacks. There were corruptions in the church, there were lynchings, there were drownings, there was violence against black Americans. <clears throat> from jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the letter from Birmingham jail. And in that letter, he describes how clergy saw him as an extremist. But his reply was, wasn't Jesus an extremist? Wasn't Paul an extremist? Wasn't Amos an extremist? Two weeks later, Martin Luther King Jr. referenced Amos 5.24 in his I Have a Dream speech. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, Amos 5.24 comes in the context of worship. 
And this is particularly meaningful to me as a musician who helps lead God's church into worship. And this is what I pray through before I play on Sundays. What does my worship communicate to those around me? Is it authentic? Does my life reflect worship beyond the songs that I sing on a Sunday night? Am I a distraction or am I a giant neon sign pointing to Jesus? Do I actually help others enter into the Holy of Holies? Enter into the foot of the cross? This is my game. <clears throat> but when I miss the mark, how do I deal with it? Am I entitled? Do I have a bad attitude? Am I teachable? Am I a servant? See, God is saying, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are as a stench to me. I do not regard your offerings, your songs, your voice. Israel had a problem with idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of someone or something other than God as well as work. Israel's heart was not pure. They commingled offerings to God with those other idols, committing syncretism and idolatry. Amos mentions the golden calf, other gods like the Mesopotamian Sargon. See, I believe that worshiping lesser gods actually leads to lesser ethics. Idolatry always leads to immorality and injustice, and the Mesopotamian Empire is full of idols. Who were these idols? Do we have idolatry today? Well, of the thousands of the idols that I kind of that, that existed, at least a few stand out. A number of them are even mentioned in scriptures, right? One of the significant idols is Asher. Asher was the god of war and power and wealth. He was the top god. He actually became the national god of the Mesopotamian Empire. And the people who worshipped Asher, I think, were actually uh, exhibiting a self indulgent kind of worship about their own place in society of wealth, power, and military might. Maybe that speaks to us as a nation. You see, if we, if we worship money, we can appear generous, but we can actually be greedy and hold wealth in ways that don't help those who need or are sure carrying out God's mission. If we worship the God of power, well, then we're going to find ways to control people and ensure that we don't lose our seat at the table and maintain our influence at all costs. I mean, religious people sin in this way all the time. How else can you explain that white Christians in the 50s and 60s were able to dress up, go to church, sing songs about loving your neighbor, and then be okay with white-only culture that diminished the image of God and black men, uh, black men, women, and children? There's also Molech. Molech was this Ammonite god who actually required sacrifice in order to ensure uh, profitability or that... Uh, you, you have the economic And so what people would do is they would bring their, their offerings, like food, and then, and then they, they would realize or be told by the cult priests that they actually required, this guy required a greater sacrifice. So then they would bring, they would bring animals. And then finally, this ultimate sacrifice is really what's going to protect you from the drought or the famine or the floods. And so you should actually bring a child. And you should sacrifice your child the altar of Moloch. It's, it's twisted, right? And then there's Ishtar, otherwise known as Astrid, who's commonly seen with Baal throughout scriptures. These people have had to perform ritual prostitution 
defiling of people. What is defiling? It means taking something sacred and making it profane. And this was occurring in God's people and in the people of Rome. And so, if we worship the God of sex, we will use and manipulate people, even if it's consensual, rather than protecting their body and soul and our own, according to God's design. Israel was found going along with the culture, allowing themselves to worship idols alongside the worship of Yahweh God. And in God's view, this is like having an affair with your spouse. It's detestable. Basically, worshiping created things as if they have power equal to or above the one true God revealed a broken trust and a lack of faith. We can be religious, and we can affirm correct statements of faith, but at the same time, we can be callous and sin against the image of God and others. And this is hypocrisy. But God tells us people, be holy as I holy. God wants us to know Him and worship Him so that we can live righteously. We can know how to love and serve and bring life, not death. Like him, we can have and show justice and mercy and love. And Jesus shows us that he is the incarnation of love. He shows us what it means to know God. See, verse 23, God commanded us, says, You are religious, you are unrighteous, get the noise you call worship away from you. And then God says, What I want is to let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a never failing stream. I don't just want action. I don't just want good behavior. I want change in your hearts. I want repentance. Justice. What is justice? Justice is a godlike virtue that gives everyone what they're due to them in every area, in every area of life. Words honor money. It's unjust to withhold protection from helpless people if they're unable to protect themselves. It's unjust to withhold opportunity from somebody based on color of their skin or to show partiality. Let justice come like water rolling down. Let it flush out the evil. And let righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is the ever flowing action of doing what is right, and that brings life. May the application of God's truth, of God's word, be like rushing water that cleanses and brings life to our souls, to our churches, to the communities around us. Let us overflow and fill our hearts and our families. Let us replace unrighteousness with righteousness. Justice points to the order of society. Righteousness points to the relationships of society between ethics and morality. God will judge those who use religion as a cover for unrighteousness. The difference is that the follower of God admits this and force corrects time and time again. You and I should reflect God holding all of us accountable for all of our actions. Everyone should be treated with fairness. At any time, when anyone is treated as a lesser, that they're treated as less deserving, that their choices are limited, that's injustice. Treating someone else less than they should be treated is injustice. We've seen that throughout our own history. Maybe some of us are familiar with the Fair Housing Act, the practice of redlining, blacklisting, searing, where lenders used to write a red line on the map and say, I'm not going to give loans to this side of the community, but this side of the loans to you. It just so happens that that side of the community were black areas. 
Did Martin Luther King Jr. use the I have a dream speech properly? He says, we won't be satisfied until the black person is fairly treated. I would say, yes, he did. We need to ask ourselves, what's my role in justice and righteousness today? Righteousness should be like a never ending stream. Think about what our worship communicates. It's hypocrisy to welcome myself into God's abundance, but ignore my neighbor throughout the week. It's hypocrisy to confess culturally acceptable sins like lust and anger, but not sins of unjust behavior. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, says, Let God be true, but every man a liar comes to the confession of our sins. See, it's hypocrisy to recite the Apostles' Creed while ignoring our neighbors in need. To recite the Apostles' Creed and ignore the Apostles' heart. To pour out our God, our hearts to God and ask for help, but to ignore our neighbors' need for help. If we want our pastor to preach the gospel, but you don't become more just as a result in your living a lie, to drink from the cup of salvation while ignoring our neighbors' marginalization, being indifferent to people's struggles? Do we come to Jesus to feast and leave our neighbors in spiritual and material fear? Do we accept blessing over us while our neighbors curse? If God did to my neighbor, if God did to me, what I did to my neighbors, where would I be? Where would you be? I mean, I actually think that God is probably more invested in me than I am into my neighbors. But the Lord wants us to put every part of ourselves into the flourishing of our neighbors. Because he put every part of himself into our flourishing. If you have failed, well then, if I have failed, we must flourish in repentance and prayer and back to true life. Romans 12.1 tells us this about what worship is. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies in living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In John 4.23, Jesus says we need to worship in spirit and truth. But what does that mean, to worship in spirit? Spirit means our worship must originate in the heart, in sincerity, in connecting to God via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who knows the depths of God deeper than what we could ever fathom. It's a beautiful mystery. And the truth, to worship in truth, means that our worship must conform to the revelation of God through Scripture. Not idol worship, not heresy. God raised up Amos to speak against the injustice abounding in Israel. You have a corrupt morality, the rich are getting rich at the oppression of the poor. You worship, your worship and your rituals are futile and sham because it's not flowing from the place of justice. But God says, here's what I want, what I want from you. The day of the Lord is coming, and the only way to avoid it is verse 524. If we want God's blessing, we should reflect God's character. But the problem with Israel is this. Their presumption and their hypocrisy actually led them to religious indifference. Amos 6, verses 1 through 14, shows us that the elite live in shameless luxury while many of their neighbors were oppressed. In their luxury and self-indulgence, they became blind and they became numb to the condition of their neighbors around them. They didn't drink wine out of glasses, they drank it out of bowls, they were profligate. Verse 6 says, They were not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Their heart was not broken over their neighbors. Your heart is unmoved. 
And this is where evangelicals are often seen as ethical failures. The church needs to act in solidarity with the neighborhood around them. This is why Waters as Church works with organizations like Star Families. So to remedy religious indifference, I'd like to submit that we need to do three things. We need to see three things in others. The first thing is royal dignity. You see, we were all created in the initiative. And in Latin, it's described as humanity. You are an image bearer. Therefore, do you think that it would modify your approach if you saw the image of God in the other? Second thing, the second way that we should see three things, uh, the second of the three things that we need to see in others is you need to see yourself. Right? We're taught at a very young age that we want to treat others in the same way that we should be treated. Well, what if you saw yourself in the other? Would that modify your approach to that person? The third thing that we need to do is we need to see Christ. Remember, in the New Testament, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. So if you see Christ in the other, would that modify your approach to the other? Mr. Rogers said, when your heart can cry another sadness, then your heart is full of love. When your heart can cry another sadness, then your heart is full of love. Are you grieved over the issues in San Diego? Are you grieved over the injustices that you see in your neighborhoods? See, many people have a difficult time believing that they themselves are unjust. I know I do. Many times I feel like I'm just a fly on the wall observer to all the injustices that are happening around me. But St. Basil said, you're guilty of injustice to as many as we might have helped, but did not. St. Augustine said, generosity is no substitute of justice without. And the early church philosopher John Chrysostom said, if you see anyone in affliction, do not be curious to inquire further. His being in affliction gives him a just claim to your life. Chrysostom is saying, you and I don't need to do a bunch of research as to if they're in need, or maybe if they brought it on themselves. I'm, then being in affliction is enough to give them just cause to our help in the eyes of God. You see, American Christianity can tend to blame the poor for their own poverty. But even if this was true, and I'm not saying that's completely true or it's not, why not help anyway? I mean, think about it. We're supposed to be a Christ-like people, right? And so, so if you think about how Jesus would, would approach a person, would, would he be looking around for people who landed in their circumstances by their own doing and avoid them? Man, I'm sure glad he didn't do that to me. Now he moves towards us all in his free grace. Matthew 9, 13 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So let me just kind of explain a couple of words that we hear and, and kind of highlight a difference. See, there's a difference in compassion and justice. Both are awesome. Both are necessary, but they are different. See, compassion deals with the fruit, but justice deals with the root. Maybe you remember a movie based on the true story of Aaron Prokovich. 
She was a whistleblower who held the case against PG&E, the gas and electric company, for groundwater contamination in Hinkley, California. It was discovered that the groundwater was contaminated with hexavalent chromium. Um, they were using that, that compound in, in the cooling systems to prevent corrosion, and this ended up causing widespread cancer in the community. The case was eventually settled in 1996 for, I think, one of the biggest settlements on record, $333 million. So, if you've seen the movie, you, you kind of get a sense that, that um, Erin had major compassion on the people of this community. She listened to their stories. She worked hard to get the help that they needed. She uh, worked hard to get the investigation looking into the root of the problem. And she helped the people in their needs. But justice is dealing with the root of the issue that caused the unsafe conditions to begin with. So here's the challenge. The church must be the thing that gets to the root of injustice to create safe conditions for those downstream. The church, you and I, we should be the thing that gets to the root of injustice to create safe conditions for those downstream. The church should be in solidarity with its neighbors. Okay, maybe you're thinking this sounds a little progressive, sounds a little left. Okay, I get that. But let's talk about the great progressive John Calvin. He says it like this, whatever man who needs, who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. You say, he's a stranger, but the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you. You say, he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one whom he is able to give the beauty of his image. You say that you are nothing for any service of his, but God's order has put him in his own place in order that you may recognize, recognize toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake, but the image of God, which recommends him to you, is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. The Lord wants truth in advertising in his church, not in defense. He wants us to walk with integrity. God wants to show that our claims are backed by the evidence of our love. His people are blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing for those in need around us. A beloved people that spreads the love that it receives to the world. We should be spreading God's love to the widow, the orphan, the social fresh, the defrauded, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. And maybe, just maybe, they will find their way back to the church. You see, we're not going to draw our neighbors in, cult, in engaging in a culture war. We're not called to a war with the culture. We're actually called to our neighbors. In fact, I believe that people need to, need to know more about what the Church of Jesus Christ is for than what we're against. Francis Schaeffer says it like this, love is the final apologetic. It's giving of our advocacy, sharing what we have, sharing our resources, extending love, living and embodying the liturgy that we rehearse every Sunday. Through this, 
is how they will get the truest appreciation of Jesus for what Jesus has done. We should draw theological resources for good, real good. This is how we draw the world into the church and create a better future together. Here's the thing. God wants to build something amazing. He wants to use us to reveal his love to the world. But have you ever felt paralyzed by the future? Maybe you feel a little paralyzed by this message. But I want you to imagine something. What if people, what if there was like a group of people who came around you every day with the sole purpose of helping you move forward and flourish? What if we came around each other in such a way that held us accountable to action, to confession, and to love? Wouldn't that change the trajectory of your life? Wouldn't that change the trajectory of our life collectively? So what's God building in you right now? What's he constructing? And who will you tell? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Lord Jesus. Help us to be a people of righteousness, a people that shows justice and that does not ignore the need of our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to see the need in one another and to show love to the person next to us as well as to the people outside of the walls of your church. We ask God that you would inspire in us a creativity and a vision for gospel beauty and how we paint our lives the blood of the one who saved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.